We're trying something new. This is a Throwback Thursday episode of the show where we dig deep into the archives and pull something that we think will be relevant and useful to hear again or for the first time today. These are in addition to our regular programming because we think they'll add real value to the show, but you should feel free to listen to these extra episodes or not, whichever you like, whereas listening to all of the regular episodes continues to be mandatory. Welcome to this Throwback Thursday edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, where we remember the past and choose to repeat it. This episode was originally published on February 17th, 2017, and we've chosen it to look back at how the corporate media handled the first Trump campaign in light of CNN's recent decision to host a Republican town hall with Trump facing friendly questions as part of his current campaign. Idea four, diversify your media. Amid all the media post-mortem on this election, people have been analyzing what went wrong with the way news outlets covered the election and the way bigoted and untrue information got traction on social media. But some people have been shouting about those problems long before the election. Carlos Maza is one of those people. Hi, my name is Carlos Maza, and I'm a research fellow at Media Matters for America, which is a progressive media watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. Carlos is one of the first people I saw who directly called out the way mainstream news outlets were reporting on Donald Trump and the coded language around his behavior. Way back in May, Carlos put together a video about why we should call Donald Trump what he is, racist and bigoted not just a, quote, controversial outsider. Donald Trump wants to reinvent himself as a serious candidate now that it's general election time, which is f***ing terrifying because he's running one of the most bigoted presidential campaigns in recent history. But news networks have spent the past 10 months treating him like just an unfiltered, tough-talking conservative. And that's doing a lot of damage to the way we talk about bigotry in American politics. It's Donald Trump's tough talk and brash style that took him to the top of the GOP field. Since day one, Trump's campaign has been defined by racial and religious bigotry. There's the little stuff like retweeting white supremacists, pretending to not know who David Duke is, and saying the before he talks about minority groups. I'm going to do great with the African-Americans. I think I'm going to do great with the Hispanics. Seriously, who does that? Then there's the bigger... Now that Carlos's worst fears have come true, I ask him to explain what's been most frustrating about the way reporters covered Donald Trump during this past year. Um, I think some of the most frustrating things about media coverage in America, and I think this is true more broadly, is this really weird, inexplicable in my mind, devotion to the idea that there are two sides to every story, and we can't really know the truth, we just have to kind of present every side of an issue and hope that people can figure it out. You see that on basically every issue, whether it's climate change or social justice, anytime there's an objective right, news outlets do their best to avoid saying something is objectively right. Carlos says that a good media diet is full of original reporting and fact-based reporting and less of the stuff that most cable news channels traffic in, the pundit commentary. You should always avoid media that emphasizes commentary and reaction um, rather than original reporting and investigative journalism. And what that does is it lends itself to news that is overly sensationalized, Um, relies heavily on partisan commentary that is often divorced from facts um, and just is, in terms of, like, nutritional value, is not actually informative or interesting for a viewer to understand. It doesn't lend to a typical civilian being able to make sense of what's right and what's wrong and what's important and what's not important. 
That means supporting the media outlets that are doing meaningful real work, too, which means, you know, subscribing or donating to support good work. The flashy, sensational news networks have no trouble getting money to support their commentary from advertisers. You can watch CNN for 15 hours straight and get very little useful knowledge about what's happening in the world. Um, and it's just not worth your time after a while. It'll make you more prone to thinking that arguing is news um, when it's not just people arguing. Carlos makes a very important point. Figure out who is writing your news. Who is actually making the media you're consuming and what backgrounds are they bringing to the table? Check and be aware of if the newsroom that you're consuming from is diverse. And I know that newsroom diversity sounds like such a boring feel-good trope. The more diverse a newsroom is, the less chance there's going to be that a report you read has a, has a just glaring blind spot um, or takes bullshit seriously or trusts people that should not be trusted. Any newsroom that does not have diversity as a central priority and defining trait of what good journalism looks like is not worth your time and should be treated with a tremendous amount of suspicion because more likely than not, you're going to get news that is just grossly incomplete um, and leads you to conclusions that are not based on reality but are based in the natural biases of that newsroom. Writing on his blog, PressThink.org, New York University journalism professor Jay Rosen noted that after last weekend's spectacular display by Press Secretary Sean Spicer, the case for sending interns to the White House briefing room is stronger than ever. He said there are no good words to describe that event. We can't call it an announcement because no new policy was revealed. It was not a conference because Spicer didn't take a single question. To the untrained eye, it was merely a tantrum over the press's coverage of President Trump's inauguration. So what do we call this? Rosen says it's a coded, quote, relationship message delivery vehicle for Trump's staff, the press, and the public. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Brooke. So what message did Spicer's tirade send to Trump's staff? You're going to be expected to lie for your boss. And then to the press, the message that the press will be regarded as hate objects. Yeah. The press is a kind of a prop playing a part in a theatrical set piece in which the administration launches resentment bombs and assembled journalists kind of behave to type in that they cry about it later on. The message was, we can do this to you. And what are you going to do about it? And we'll get to what you suggest they do about it in a moment. First, let's talk about that third group of people. Spicer was messaging the viewer at home, which you divide into three distinct groups. First, for the Trump supporters, one of the messages was that you were going to get something you want, which is we're going to put down the press corps, put them in their place. In a way, Brooke, this is fulfilling a campaign promise. But in exchange for that, you're going to have to take on our lies as your lies. People have to decide they're going to either support Trump no matter what he says, or they're going to deal with this really tricky thing of the guy that I supported actually says stuff that's not true. What do I do? That's painful. That's hard. And that's to group one, the Trump supporters. Trump supporters. Then there was another message to Trump's dedicated opponents, many of whom turned out in the streets the day after the inauguration, which is simply, go nuts. We're going to continue with the spectacular lies and 
There's going to be day after day of stuff for you to hate. The more extreme you get in your reaction and your rhetoric, the better for us. So do it. Yeah, because you'll just embolden our supporters even more. You'll drive them deeper into our arms. Yeah. Then you've got the group that fall into neither of the previous two camps. I call them the neither nors. Right. They're not Trump's hardcore supporters, but they haven't decided that they're in opposition to him either. Maybe they're in wait-and-see mode. Maybe they voted, but they're a little bit doubtful. The neither nors. For those people, the message is, everybody's shouting again. It's very hard to figure out what's going on. This spectacle is getting uglier. Trying to find out who's really right. The people who say there's no evidence of voter fraud, the people who say, are you kidding? It's obvious. It would take a lot of work to figure that out. So you should just go on and live your life. And for that group of people, the Trump world is raising what economists call search costs. What it takes you to get enough information to make a good decision. And sometimes we make bad decisions or we act irrationally, not because we're irrational creatures, but because the search costs are just so high that we can't figure out what's going on. But why doesn't the Trump camp, rather than generate this fog machine to further disorient and paralyze the neither-nors, try to attract them? Lots of the things that Trump wants to do aren't necessarily popular. So if you can surround them with fog and confusion and people don't pay attention as much, you can get a lot more done. Now, contributing to this fog of confusion and apathy is Kellyanne Conway. Mm. You've been ensnared in a controversy about her because of remarks you made to the podcast Recode. The Washington Free Beacon wrote, a journalism professor is calling for a boycott on White House advisor Kellyanne Conway because of her ability to deflect criticism of the administration. What really happened there, Jay? I was asked about Kellyanne Conway, how the press should handle her, and I said that I think the journalistic rationale for continuing to interview her had eroded in that I could see two reasons why you would continue to have her on. One is because she represents the views of Donald Trump. But frequently, what she says is contradicted by Donald Trump. Or she'll say, I don't know, you'll have to ask him. Well, if we have to ask him, why are we talking to you? Another reason might be to get clarity on how Trump world thinks. But I don't know about you, when I'm done listening to Kellyanne Conway, I feel I know less (laughs) about what Trump world thinks, in the sense that introducing confusion is a part of her method. It subtracts from the general store of information about Trump. Yes. So what I said was, if you're going to continue to interview Kellyanne Conway, the logic has to be somewhat different. One would be entertainment. It is entertaining to watch her fence with Chuck Todd. Another would be, we don't want to get criticism for being one-sided, so we ask Kellyanne Conway on so we can say the Trump world is represented. Avoiding criticism. But in that case... You have to cop to it. Yeah, you have to say it. That we are doing this for pure numerical balance and we don't expect to get any real information. Right. Just level with us. Say, this is why we're doing this. We can't resist. I know the press is going to continue to interview her. Which brings us back to the White House press room and something you wrote in one of your posts. Send in the interns. Mm -hmm. You don't have to serve as a hate object. There's nowhere 
It is written that you must do that. However, it is written in most intern contracts. <laughs> <laughs> right. If that's what we ask you to do, then that's what you will do. <laughs> There's another reason I love the idea of sending interns, and that's the optics of it. I mean, mm-hmm. the younger, the better. Yes. Have Spicer unload his right. big guns right. on 18-year-olds mm-hmm. and blame them for the collapse of civilization. Yeah, and maybe they would come up with a different way of fencing with Sean Spicer than the pros do, right? True. Maybe they would come up with almost like a Stephen Colbert-ish, you know, misdirection play that would constitute their cultural theater being practiced upon the White House as opposed to the reverse. So that, that's I another I love reason. that super ironic yeah, people whatever. in the newsroom. That would be the best. Let's get back to that up for grabs, the neither nors. The silver lining here is that these are people who are not already so subsumed in confirmation bias on either side that they can actually be open to information. Mm -hmm. I'm really struck by what you said in one of your posts when you directed us to make a distinction that sociologist C. Wright Mills wrote about in the 1950s between troubles and issues. Right. Troubles are the things that are actively bothering people in their immediate environment, the problems they can see in their daily lives that they discuss with family members. Issues are public disputes about what to do that are also affected by what the political system needs to mobilize people, create coalitions, avoid criticism. So if journalists just come into the picture after the issues are formulated by somebody else and start reporting on how they get fought about, they're going to miss out on this earlier step where people's troubles get transformed into issues. It's not political reporting, really, to go out there. It's, as you say, it's troubles reporting. Yeah. So that you don't end up just reporting on someone else's definition of someone else's experience. And that's where I think reporting in 2016 fell down. And that's where I think journalists now have to go back and try the big listen and get a very good read on the troubles that led people to be so disgusted with the establishment and some of them to vote for Donald Trump, to go back and fashion out of that a kind of anchoring reporting agenda, they could begin to speak to that third middle group in a way that the Trump administration or Congress is not prepared to do. And then you want that to inform all the rest of the reporting, right? Yes. An example of this is uh, the Texas Tribune. Their bread and butter is policy reporting. You know, they're and in data. and data and they're in the Capitol a lot. They're based in Austin. After the election, they put out a job listing for a reporter whose job is specifically to listen to Texans. That's their whole job to make sure that the issues talked about in the Texas Tribune don't disconnect from the troubles that Texans feel in their daily lives. So that's that's one way of doing it, to try and go back to that wrong turn. When, for example, the pundits on the roundtable say, 
Well, how do you think this is going to play with the white working class? That's viewing the white working class through the eyes of the consultants and handlers and pollsters, right? They're objects. They're like balls on the billiard table. Will they break this way? Will they break that way? That way of seeing people was corrosive. Our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. Members enjoy an ad-free version of the show, as well as bonus episodes and bonus content in each regular episode, plus extremely handy chapter markers that help identify and navigate the clips. Sign up for membership at bestofleft.com support. The Failing New York Times. Which isn't true. He's entitled to his opinion, but he's wrong on the facts of our economics. Dean Barquet is the executive editor of the New York Times, a well-respected broadsheet founded 165 years ago, which has won over 100 Pulitzer Prizes. And yet, it's routinely described by President Trump as... The failing New York Times, because it's failing, it's losing a fortune... How do you handle the president when you're facing such a barrage of criticism from the White House? You cover him aggressively. You cover him fairly. You cover him accurately. And if he beats you up in the court of Twitter, you don't respond unless he says something that's factually inaccurate. You just keep reporting away. That's the mission that's that simple. It was the middle of the night when journalists in the huge New York Times newsroom, most of them expecting an election victory for Hillary Clinton, realised Donald Trump had won. When a big story breaks, there's this moment where everybody falls forward and sort of rushes into the story. And I just remember thinking, got to get the right headline ready. What's the right headline for Donald Trump? Trump triumphs, he decided. A huge story. And yet somehow, in failing to anticipate Donald Trump's victory, one the New York Times had missed. I would probably put it more um, diplomatically than that. Here's what I think we missed. And I think the entire journalism establishment of the United States largely missed. I think we didn't have a handle on the anger in America. And I don't think we quite understood the appeal Donald Trump held for a lot of Americans. I think we sort of all missed this dramatic shift in the tone of the country. How, then, did they miss it? Part of it is that we're in a moment where the finest news organizations in the world largely are in big, liberal, I would say, American cities. Soon after the momentous election result, Dean Barquet had a message for his newsroom staff. This is a truly clarifying moment for us. The country is begging for us to do two things. To explain what happened and to hold power to account. Immediately, the New York Times put more journalists on the political beat. Donald Trump is leading a revolution in the way government works. We've put more people in the Washington Bureau. Usually, you have two or three people covering the White House. We have six. But the surprise president had shown Dean Barquet that his newspaper was out of step with many Americans, people who had, against all predictions, chosen Donald Trump to be their leader. He could see the paper had a problem. And, he says, he can see the solution. We're just going to be out in the country as much as we can. 
The New York Times has the biggest national staff of any news organization in the U.S. and has reporters all over America. But now Dean Barquet is asking them to go deeper. Encouraging them to get outside of Atlanta and to the places around Atlanta and get outside of New Orleans and to the places around New Orleans. And he wants his reporters to go deeper into the issues people most care about. Religion, he knows from experience, is the big one. I grew up in the American South, in a very Catholic city, New Orleans. And the discussions are very different than they are in New York or Los Angeles or Washington, D.C. Figuring out ways to get in the middle of more of those discussions is going to be important to understanding the country, I think. It's to help our readers understand how people think who are not like them. And far from failing, the New York Times says it's been gaining tens of thousands of readers in recent months and that subscriptions are at an all-time high. Right now, three million people pay to read the New York Times in some form or another. Subscriptions are going up like crazy. The truth is, this is a great story and people are lining up to read us. Donald Trump, Dean Barkey says, is both making the New York Times more money and prompting it to do better journalism. It's given us clarity. I think it's given the country an understanding of the value of really good journalism. So you asked me in the very beginning how I felt election night. The part of me that has been in newsrooms since I was 19 years old, that part of me said, oh my God, you are covering a gigantic story. Have fun with it. A couple of weeks ago, watching the political media chase their tails, we asked linguist George Lakoff for guidance on how to report on the erroneous emissions, whether by Twitter or mouth, of Donald J. Trump. In his first week in office, the nation's capital shook under a fusillade of flim-flam. So we tried out Lakoff's prescriptions on one recent presidential tweet. Lakoff says you cover his tweets by first not covering his tweet. You begin by telling the truth and giving the evidence for that truth. So here's the truth. This past November, the United States held a free and fair election in which Donald Trump lost the popular vote by nearly 2.9 million votes, but won the Electoral College by 74 votes, thereby winning the presidency. Then mention his tweet, point out that that contradicts the truth. Wednesday's tweet. I will be asking for a major investigation into voter fraud, including those registered to vote in two states, those who are illegal and even those registered to vote who are dead and many for a long time. Depending on results, we will strengthen up voting procedures. The truth is that voter fraud is virtually non-existent. In one study, law professor Justin Levitt found 31 credible incidents out of one billion ballots cast. Even members of the GOP agree, including House Speaker Paul Ryan. I've seen no evidence to that effect, and I've made that very, very clear. And Trump's own campaign has argued that, quote, all available evidence suggests that the 2016 general election was not tainted by fraud or mistake. So, George, what do we do now? Talk about what kind of tweet this is. You have to understand 
what the framing is, and what the framing is he's trying to avoid. Trump's Twitter call to investigate millions of allegedly fraudulent votes is what Lakoff calls a tweet of preemptive framing. The idea of preemptive framing is to frame an issue before other people get a chance to, to put the idea out there first. If Trump reframes his loss of the popular vote as tainted, he induces us to discuss it through that lens. It's also a tweet of diversion, bending the media's focus to the investigation and away from that irksome popular vote, which Trump views as a challenge to his mandate. And this tweet also fits a third category in Lakoff's tweet taxonomy, the trial balloon. He's going to see how people react to this, and then he'll know what to do in the future. Does he have popular support for a wholesale investigation into voter fraud? Run it up the flagpole and see who salutes. So what should we do when Trump issues a tweet to divert us from real issues? Keep going back to substance and the truth. Obviously, there are many, many, many substantial things that happened this week. President Trump kicked off his term with a flurry of executive action. President Trump has signed an executive order pulling the U.S. out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. The president re-implemented an order banning American tax money from funding abortions in other countries. It's known as the Mexico City policy. President Trump also signed a series of new executive orders earlier today, including a pair to advance the Keystone XL and Dakota Access oil pipelines. To name just a few. He's also lost the entire senior administrative team of the State Department, signed an order that could weaken the Affordable Care Act, met with UK Prime Minister Theresa May, and kept James Comey on as head of the FBI. Oh boy, not done yet. President Trump has signed an order to build a wall on the U.S. border with Mexico, one of his main campaign promises. The order also curtails federal funding for sanctuary cities, hires 5,000 more Border Patrol agents, and ends the Obama-era practice of catch and release. And then there was this. Yesterday, the Trump administration instituted a media blackout at the EPA. It banned agency employees from giving social media updates or speaking with reporters. And it barred staff from awarding any new contracts or grants. The EPA media blackout came on the heels of another disquieting move, calling for the National Park Service to silence its Twitter accounts. Most parks fell into line, but not all. Badlands National Park was bad to the bone in defiance of Trump. The South Dakota Park's Twitter account fired off a tweet storm of climate science data. It was retweeted tens of thousands of times before being deleted. It seems other Park Service staffers defied the administration's orders by spontaneously producing alternative, unregulated social media accounts. The first was a Twitter account called Alt-US Nat Park Service. It was allegedly run by Park Service employees and quickly started sending out climate climate change facts and taunting the new president saying you can take our official Twitter, but you'll never take our free time. Newsmax president and CEO Christopher Ruddy was recently on television and he made an interesting case. Um, now we've got his face here and it says uh, biased news, uh, but I'm not referring to him. Even though he's conservative, I actually think uh, I as a progressive think that he makes an interesting case. They're going to be talking about fake news and he brings up the issue of biased news. So let's watch. Hmm. We talked about fake news earlier on your show or folks have and that's been the talk of all the news media. What about biased news? 
I think that had a much bigger impact in this election. And there's a general feeling, Jeffrey Tubin said earlier, people feel the media are responsible. You guys had a responsibility to give fair and balanced news. And I think anybody that looked at this objectively, they were talking about issues the American public didn't call. So that's very interesting. And I think I generally agree with him. So the, the question is, what was more damaging, fake news or biased news? Now, this is where I will lose a lot of Democratic Party establishment. And I, I know that generally, and I know it specifically because of the quotes that I'm going to give you. Um, Huffington posted a big story, and they lean progressive about, oh, this issue of, you know, uh, blaming the media is outrageous. Uh, just bow your head and, and accept what the corporate media gives you. The corporate media couldn't possibly be biased. So I'm in a unique situation here because some of the conservatives say, oh, the, uh, fake news is not a real issue. Uh, Democratic Party establishment thinks fake news was the determinative issue. And if it wasn't for that, we would have won if it wasn't for you rascally kids. And don't blame Hillary Clinton. Don't blame the Democratic Party establishment. It was all the fake news. No, I think fake news was a real issue. I saw it on Facebook and it was in droves. And obviously it had a purpose and it was to deceive people. And I think that it did have an effect. But I don't think it was determinative. I don't think that it absolves the Democratic Party of the issues that they cost them this election. I also agree with Ruddy that it was not the biggest factor in news. So now let me give you the so-called liberal position and then I will argue against it. So Thomas Mann, who was from the Brookings Institution, which is a left-leaning think tank, says a lot more goes into policymaking and decisions than money, and the idea that it's all bought and sold is really quite destructive. Now he's saying that in the context of the media because he's saying uh, all these uh, guys on the right who were talking about draining the swamp, and all the people on the left, like Bernie Sanders, who were saying that the uh, the politicians are bought and the corporate media is part of that same establishment are wrong because oh it's really overbought overstated come on do the politicians really listen to their donors yes thomas man they most absolutely do and i've got evidence to show you uh, in a second uh, that is i think very much determinative on that issue and then he goes on to say uh, there's too much reporting that reinforces the public view that it's all corrupt what do you mean there's too much reporting there is almost no reporting in the mainstream media about how it's corrupt. They will carry a speech by Trump when he says drain the swamp. They will sometimes carry speech of Bernie Sanders or when he's in a debate, they will allow him to make the point. Uh, they won't cut his mic as he says that there's corruption. But when's the last time you saw the corporate media talking about politician X gets money from these donors and then he does exactly what his donors tell him to do? Here, I can show it to you in the legislation. Now, they could do dozens, in fact, they could do hundreds of those stories. But do they? They almost never do those stories. So Thomas Mann, I don't know what the hell you're talking about when you say that the media covers that too much. No, the problem is they don't cover it nearly enough because remember, they are the benefactors of that corruption. Most of the money that is raised from donors goes into TV ads, billions of dollars in TV ads. They're not against that corruption. That corruption is their business model. So more from man, more that is wrong from the left side. To Brookings man, that could be the Sanders campaign's lasting legacy, uh, having the post explains, convincing an entire cohort of first-time Democratic-leaning voters that the system is beyond repair. And here's a quote directly from man. He says, that was uh, his, referring to Bernie Sanders, that was Sanders' major contribution to this election, unfortunately. 
I thought Bernie was very harmful. <laughs> so if you had all just bowed your heads and accepted the establishment as it is and not challenged it from the left, we could have just tricked the American people for longer that there was no corruption, that the donors don't make any difference at all. Okay. Um, it, Donna Brazil unsurprisingly agrees. She said the emails were, the leaked emails from Podesta were, quote, weaponized to sow misinformation and to sow discord between the Clinton and Sanders camps. Now, look, those emails, yes, they did not help Hillary Clinton's cause. But that's because they revealed the truth about what she was actually thinking and what her campaign was actually do, doing. The Clinton-Sanders camp were divided based on policy, based on real differences. It wasn't like, oh my God, the Russians hacked something and created a divide. No, that divide already existed because the Sanders camp, real progressives say there is corruption. It's obvious, right? And the Clinton camp goes, oh, I don't see any evil. I don't hear any evil. There's no corruption. The establishment is awesome. Vote for the establishment. How did that strategy work out for you guys? It worked out miserably because the American people don't agree with you. And by the way, very importantly, they are right. So now let me show you the evidence on that. So this is the chart of productivity versus hourly compensation through the decades of America. So you see in that chart from 1948 to 1973, and I would make the case um, that that change happened a little bit later. But it's you know some people call it 78, some people call it 80, and here in this chart they say 1973. Okay, and you can see with your own eyes where it begins to diverge. But from 48 to 73, inarguably. As American productivity went up, hourly compensation went up, which is great. So you, the American worker, you were productive and you got compensated for it. But from then on, that chart diverges significantly. Great job, American workers. Your productivity was through the roof. It was up 74.4 percent from 1973 to 2013. And uh, an overall up 243 percent. God, you're incredibly productive. But your compensation did not match. Between 1973 and 2013, your hourly compensation went up only 9.2%. You did not get the reward of your work. You see the difference between those two lines? You know what that equals? Trillions of dollars. Not millions, not billions, trillions of dollars. Now, so what happened there? What happened was, the system got rigged in favor of the rich and the powerful. And they did it through changing the tax code. They did it through keeping the minimum wage down. They did it through deregulation. And how were they able to get those laws passed? Why weren't they able to get them passed between 1948 and 1973? And why were they able to get them passed after the 1970s? I'm glad you asked. Well, back then, we had the New Deal in place. And it did not allow for direct campaign donations from multinational corporations or from wealthy individuals directly into financing elections. That was illegal. You couldn't do it. So it was really hard to buy your representatives. That's not to say that it never happened. Of course, there's been corruption throughout American history. But it was harder. And if you got caught, you went to jail. And you can see from that chart that it was so hard that they couldn't rig the rules to take all the money away from you back then. You see the proof is in the pudding, it's in the results. But then when they changed the rules and the Supreme Court in 1976 said, money's speech. 
1978, they said, oh, corporations are human beings, and so they have a First Amendment right to pay off politicians. They legalized bribery. And when they did, you know what the result was? All of a sudden, your representatives no longer represented you, they represented the donors. So let me show you the result of that. So this is a Princeton and Northwestern study, and they showed over a great number of years, this is over 1,800 policy positions in, a, in, in about a 40-year time period. And the chart on the left shows you the results of public opinion. Did public opinion have any effect on public policy? Now, in a democracy, it should have a direct effect. The people think this, they get laws that say the same thing. But on the left, you see it's a flat line. So your opinion, even though we're supposed to live in a democracy, had no effect on public policy, on the laws that were passed, none. On the right-hand side, you see economic elite and donor opinion. That has almost a direct correlation to the laws that were passed. That's how they rigged the system. It's not a conspiracy that's hidden anywhere. It's right out in the open. They said, oh, I got a great idea. Let us just bribe them legally. The Supreme Court stacked by right-wingers, and Nixon is the one who stacked it. Lewis Powell wrote a memo saying, hey, why doesn't the Chamber of Commerce just capture the Supreme Court? It'll make all the difference. Richard Nixon reads the memo, and that was written in the early 1970s, because, hey, Lewis Powell, that's a genius idea. Guess what? I'm going to put you on the Supreme Court. Not, I'm going to take your idea and put it, in, put someone else in. He's like, that's such a good idea. I'm going to let you capture the Supreme Court. Lewis Powell goes on the Supreme Court. What does he decide? He's the deciding vote in that decision, Buckley v. Vallejo in 76 that I told you about, deciding vote in Bilotti, the 1978 decision. The business interests capture our Supreme Court, and then they're able to legally give money to politicians, and all of a sudden, the politicians don't represent you anymore. So I showed you the results of that. Trillions of dollars of value extracted from your work goes into their pockets. But on top of that, let me show you how they fixed the tax code. Back in 1952, when we have an honest system, corporations are paying 32.1% of all taxes. The social insurance and retirement is only 9.7%. That's the payroll tax that you pay. Everybody pays it, and, uh, and it's a regressive tax. It actually, once you get beyond a certain income level, the rich don't have to pay it anymore. They paid in the beginning like you do, but on top of their extra income, they never have to pay it. It's actually the least fair tax that we have. Now, look at 2015. All of a sudden, corporations are not paying 32%. They're only paying 10.8% of the taxes. Look at that magic. All of a sudden, their tax burden is much, much smaller. And by the way, that is not corporate America. That is multinational corporations. Their executives are multinational. Their shareholders are multinational. They have no interest in America. They're not patriotic. They are robots and machines built to maximize profit. Those are multinational corporations that rig the rules in our country to their favor. And look at who winds up paying the price. That social insurance and retirement went from 9.7 to 33.5% of all the taxes being paid. The most regressive tax we have the one that charges the biggest percentage of income to the poor and the middle class, especially the middle class, well, that's where the tax burden got shifted. And then the last trick of this is that as you are mad that taxes are too high, you're right. 
because they shifted tax burden onto you. Then the Republicans turn around and go, you see that? That's why we should lower taxes on corporations. <laughs> you see how they switched it on you? You're not wrong to be mad about taxes because you're carrying the bigger load. But lowering corporate taxes doesn't help that equation. It hurts that equation. So all of this is in service of the establishment. That is, yes, the corrupted politicians, that's true. So Democratic Party, you could argue that the Republican Party is slightly more corrupt than you because they're better at serving the rich and multinational corporations, and that's fair. But it's only slightly better than you. Are you guilty of this as well? Hell yes, you are. That's why the people just didn't vote for you, because Hillary Clinton was the embodiment of the establishment. 17% of Donald Trump voters said they thought he was unqualified for office. Isn't that amazing? Unqualified for office, but I voted for him anyway. Why? Because I can't stand the establishment. That's who Hillary Clinton is, and I'm not going to vote for them. Okay? Now, uh, on top of that, the establishment is also the corruptors. So Republicans, wake up. How do you think the politicians got corrupt in the first place? From their donors. So multinational corporations and all of the other interests, whether it's rich people, including Sheldon Adelson and the Koch brothers who are, and the Mercers who are on the right, or George Soros, Mike Bloomberg, whoever else is on the left, corporations and unions. We've got to stop them from buying our politicians. So they are the establishment. And part of that establishment is, yes, the media. Because the media is also run by multinational corporations that are worth billions of dollars, that profit to the tune of billions of dollars from the ads that go into that corrupt system. We've got, and, and so when you say from the Brookings Institute, from the left or from the right, oh, everything's fine. I don't know what people are talking about being the system being rigged. That's what we're talking about. The system is rigged. And there it is in clear evidence as to how it got rigged and what the results of that rigging was. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it. Is that clear? Do you think you merely stopped a business deal? That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems, one vast and main, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rims, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic 
and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? You get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state? Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, minimax solutions, and compute the price cost probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. And our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock. All necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. And I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, to preach this evangel. Why me? Because you're on television, dummy. Sixty million people watch you every night of the week, Monday through Friday. I have seen the face of God. You just might be right, Mr. Beale. Thanks for listening to another throwback episode plucked from the archives to give you context for today. For more like this, check the feed as this is a weekly feature of the show that's in addition to all of our new episodes. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail or text at 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. These episodes are remastered and produced by Dion Clark, Aaron Clayton, and myself. We also produce funny and informative bonus episodes 
episodes along with Amanda Hoffman as thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships to the show. If you get value out of the show, we'd appreciate your support at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, with new episodes coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.